Welcome to Paranormal, the New Normal. My guest tonight was recommended to me by a friend of mine, Harvey Laguerre, from Bracket Bastards and then the Prize podcast. So when he recommended to me, I'm like, oh, I'll definitely have to get him on. And my guest is Mike Martin from the Project Mindfully Outdoors podcast. And did I fuck it up? No, you hit it right on spot. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Yay! So, but so yeah, the, the the Project Mindfully Outdoors podcast, which I had not myself had a chance to check out, but it sounds interesting. So I might have, I definitely gonna have to check it out at some point. And how you doing tonight, Mike? You know what? I'm doing good. How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. My second live stream today, so can't complain. It's good to be here. Good to be here. How's it going, V-Team Paranormal? Some of the regular Parapost watchers. So, we like to start this show always with one simple question. And I think I know the answer to, your, to this question for you, but what made you get into the paranormal? You know, actually, I'd never put a lot of thought into this so I was getting ready to uh, have this conversation with you. And it ties together in this interesting kind of way because we're all based on energy. So throughout, whether you're on Earth or you're not on Earth, your energy is still here in one form or another. And for me, it, my most direct experience with it has come in two different ways. Number one being my grandmother. After she passed away, she's reached out to me in a couple of different, different facets of life. One being one of the most joyful experiences, the other being one of the darkest, you know, end of the end of the road type experiences. And the joyful one was the birth of my son. And she not only touched me in a dream, but somehow managed to call me to tell me that she knew. And then the darkest being right after I found out I was getting hit with my second divorce and my entire life fell apart sitting in a deer blind running to end it and uh hearing her hum that soothing hum that used to sing me to sleep i still tried that night but i survived and that leads me to the other aspect of this that really when i was thinking about things they really intrigued me is along my journey of healing through the outdoors, which is what Project Mindfully Outdoors is all about. It gets back to that idea of the energy that gets left behind that we interact with being here on Earth. And a lot of that has come through different forms of writing. And when you connect with, as uh, an oracle once told, a uh, early stoic the founder, Zeno, that everything happens when you connect with the dead by reading different writings from the dead. And that's what I do. And that's kind of what's really propelled me to shift my life completely around. It was like this map that just kind of enters me every time I pick up a new writing. All right. Which I can respect that. That's just a good, that's a good way to think. That's a good way to think. And even even Einstein said, because he believed in ghosts fully, because he said, we're full of energy, and when we die, it has to go somewhere, and it's not just going to disappear. It's phys it's physically, and in, in every way, impossible for energy to just disappear. So, it makes sense. Which, but I gotta ask, being an outdoorsy type guy, which I am not, my wife tries to make me be one, but I am not one. <laughs> I hate camping with a passion. Do you, have you ever ever been anywhere where you've seen evidence of Sasquatch? I I'd like to tell myself stories just to keep the adventures exciting, but in all reality, probably not. You know, I've seen some weird things happen as far as you know, walking up on something that I really couldn't explain why it was there, and then having to really think about it and. I'm very skeptical and logical about everything, so I was able to talk myself out of it being real. 
and then I look at, you know, the different people out there that post all the content and stuff and how you can just see through all those different aspects. But to me, it's more about, like I said in the beginning of that, adding to the adventure, the excitement. I think that's why we need those kind of things. It, it's true. I mean, it, it does definitely add a little more excitement. I mean, even for my kids, if we're going hiking in the woods and I say, oh, maybe we'll see a Bigfoot today, which, you know, chances of that are slim to nothing, but it's just a way to add excitement to everything. It's a way to make, and I truly, I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later, I'm sure, but I truly do believe in Bigfoot in every way, just because there's too much evidence out there for there not to be something that's causing it. But I, I like to believe that there is, but, you know, in the logical statistical point, even in the uh, most scarce populations of mountain lions, one eventually gets hit by a car. And I feel like at some point, you know, there's got to be a body that turns up or something. And then you got to ask yourself that question about how everything that they, all the hair that they test and stuff like that, it turns out to be, you know, a raccoon or a bear or something like that. Yes, a lot of times it does turn out to be hairs from something we know exists already. And But there are times that I've heard about where the hair comes back inconclusive and they can't match it to anything that we know of yet. Which, the, little, the few times that happens, you have to hold on to, if you want to believe, you have to hold on to that. And as far as getting hit by a car goes, I like to think that Bigfoot are intelligent enough to avoid cars. Because if they're, because by all theories, they're as intelligent as almost as intelligent as we are. Like they can, if and if you can hide from human beings for thousands of years at this point, well, okay, let's say a thousand, because they there is records of them having communication with Native Americans and other early early humans, because they were more trustworthy and they love the they love the environment more than we do, so they would never harm them just for being existing. So for the last thousand years, I mean, they've been avoiding humans, which to be able to avoid another species that well, where only the only thing they can get from you is blurry pictures, which there's theories about that as well, but we'll get into that later too. Then, I mean, there's some kind of intelligence there that can't be undermined or just like undetermined. Like it has to be a pretty damn good intelligence to avoid humans. Most definitely. Even, even mountain lions don't avoid humans completely. I mean, they still pop out of the brush when you're walking in the woods sometimes. I mean, I never had it happen, but thank God. But because I'd have two kids to protect if it happens to me. But but I, I was going to say that that word intelligence that you used in there, I think is this byproduct of the Bigfoot phenomenon that is really fun and exciting to travel down. Because if you really get into <clears throat> exploring Bigfoot and trying to prove yourself whether or not he's real or not, you pick up a lot of scientific wormholes that you have to dive down and you have to understand. And not only are there fascinating stories from people that have done that, but you tend to take your own little evolution too, and it makes you shift the perspective that you're looking at not only yourself but your engagement with the environment and everything else around you yeah i can see that point as well but i mean i i don't know i mean <laughs> i mean it i mean and to go back to the photograph thing even the fact that every photograph of them even because i'm friend i am i follow these this couple on facebook and they supposedly i mean i never met them i never talked to them so i don't know this from a hole in the wall but supposedly they live in the wilderness basically and they take they post pictures every day of uh basically a tribe or family of bigfoot that live around their property and it's picture i mean it's never a clear clear picture you could see outlines of something in the forest in the trees and i mean they have these cameras set everywhere that's how they get the pictures but People always say, why are Bigfoot pictures always blurry? 
Well, what if there's something there? What if there's some kind of extraterrestrial connection or ultra-terrestrial ultra-terrestrial connection, which means other interdimensional? What if they are have the ability to make themselves blurry in any kind of electronic that captures them? Because, I mean, if you look at the Patterson-Gimlin film, it's blurry as hell, and they weren't that far away from it. With, even with the video camera in the, what was that, 50s, 60s, 70s? Like, a video camera back then still wasn't that bad where everything's going to be that blurry. So it makes a lot of people think that maybe they're connected to something else, and that's why they have the ability to make things blurry. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of those kind of possibilities when you look outside of the scientific explanations. And I think you've really got to be kind of mindful of the uh, content that you're exploring as you go down that sort of wormhole. There are a lot of people that find the humor within it. And they like to exploit things in a way that present them as being real, but to get back to that point, you know, that whole theory around they were indeed dropped off here by aliens to exploit the different resources of Earth, kind of like a slave labor. And uh, as they got all that stuff out of the Earth that they needed, they just left them behind. I think it's a pretty interesting aspect to go behind because the possibility is there when you look at it, really does explain why maybe our cameras aren't fast enough to catch up with a clear picture or all these other different things that you can use a computer to break down and ask questions about is because we just don't have that technology to understand it yet. Possibly. I mean, it makes sense in a way, which actually it's funny. I was just talking to another podcaster earlier today about that theory as well about uh, about whether humans were a slave race originally brought by aliens and if Bigfoot were possibly a, another slave race brought by aliens and they left them behind, same as they did us. Which, that's one theory because I, I do have this whole theory that Earth is a alien prison planet and that other alien species put the species they don't want in the universe anymore on Earth and trap them here. So, I mean, that would explain Bigfoot, Loch Ness, and all the other sea monsters. That would explain Dogmen and a bunch of other cryptids, basically, which, I mean, it's a far-out theory. I heard it somewhere at some point, and I swear to God, I got to try to Google it someday, because I can't remember for the life of me where I heard it. But I basically have held on to that as, like, a really good theory in my mind. But before we get, before we get off, go down a wormhole, basically... Are there, any, are there are there any other experiences that you want to talk about before we jump into just our pure dialogue of cryptids? No, I think, you know, there's just that they really, I think, where shadows and kind of covers all this, that connection that we each have with the energy of the land. And that connection really fuels the concept of storytelling. Because even in our modern times, being able to scientifically explain things, you know, our ancestors, they'd make up stories about each and every different aspect of the world. It's a way to explain it and understand it and ultimately draw, draw connections and push themselves to be better human beings. For it. And I think that's still something that we carry today and we still use, but in a completely different context yeah i mean i agree because i mean native americans for one they had stories for literally everything i mean the earth moved the earth moved because it was on the back of a turtle and and the the coyote was there to trick people and every every animal had a purpose to them i mean every animal was some great godlike creature that had abilities or was there just to teach lessons. But the funny thing is Native Americans, they, when, when they met white men, they would tell tales of their ancestors trading with tribes of hairy giant men, which a lot of people have pointed to as being possibly a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. I mean, because 
Native Americans tend not to lie about like their past as much as other races do from what I've seen and what I've heard. But I mean, do you think there's any possibility that maybe Native Americans did learn to communicate with these creatures and trade with them? I think that that falls along their ideology because it was all about that connection and that communication, respecting everything as an equal. So I feel like having that sort of mindset, if Bigfoot was indeed out there, that would draw them in to be willing to pull and pool resources and, you know, whatnot to make survival a little, a little bit easier. And how you mentioned about the Native Americans being the least of all to lie about their heritage where they come from, to make up stories to cover things up. I think if you go down that, that path, us as, you know, the race that, or the, the culture that took over and wiped the Native Americans out, we really got that idea of customizing the narrative down. So if there's a subject that we're not comfortable with, that we don't like, we just we change the details. And, you know, Bigfoot may have been one of those insignificant things or misunderstood or even an active part of the early story that they wiped out very quickly and just swept under the rug. Yeah, I mean, it's po- it's 100% possible. It's 100% possible that's true. I mean, I also have had other podcasters and paranormal investigators tell me that when you talk about that, a lot of Native Americans say that they believe that Bigfoot was like a spirit, like a spirit of something that passed a long time ago, but they still would see it walking through the woods now and then. Almost like a ghost of a, of a creature that once lived, which that kind of lines up with what you're saying about like every the energy of something just still existing even though and that would also explain why you don't see the bodies anywhere because if they're spirits there's not gonna be any bodies the bodies decomposed a long long time ago and they're not gonna find them definitely uh definitely sounds about right if you're walking down that wormhole because you know the narratives the stories the way that they put the connection to everything on earth in a beneficial way i think really defines kind of that spiritual aspect that they that they share yeah i i mean i i agree and bottom line to everything like this and i say it all the time in the show is we're never going to truly know these answers unless a the government comes out and tells us something we don't know like oh yeah sasquatch exist we've just been protecting them all these years that's why you don't find bodies because we get rid of the bodies when they when, we, when they're reported and we take care of the witnesses too so you know typical government style but no i think like the ultimate way is uh the idea that that senator down south came up with is opening up an actual bigfoot hunting season and that right you know if somebody was actually successful would give you the proof that Nobody could dispute any further. See, I, I mean, I see the logic behind that idea, but the, it to me, it'd be like hunting like these gentle creatures that rarely ever attack humans unless humans are on their territory, supposedly. So, I mean, I'm all for hunting. I'm all for hunting as long as people use the actual carcass instead of just hunting for the. Like I don't, I don't, I don't support big game hunters who just hunt to get a trophy. Like to me, that's horrible. But no, if you're hunting, there's a big difference between the idea of substan- substantial hunting, as far as hunting to you know survive and put food on the table and stuff like that, as opposed to trophy hunting. Trophy hunting oh. is kind of one of those, I guess, more. Ted- not, not so much taboo, but, you know, aspects of the hunting community that we're trying to get away from because it's becoming more and more less accepted. Yeah, I mean, especially in the days of social media now, I know most 
when big game hunters have like their picture posted on online, they get so much hate for what they do. Like, like the freaking, uh, it was the one guy who shot a lion like five or six years ago. And like he posted, he had a picture posted with him with the lion online. And oh my God, the death threats on Facebook against this guy were freaking huge. Like, and I was just like, all right, I agree with you guys. If, he should he should get put out and, and get hunted like most like the most dangerous game type of stuff. But yeah, see that that's kind of I don't know. It's like the culture in different areas of the world, you know. Has uh, we've moved into like the conservation aspect becoming the most important part of the hunting experience. We've uh, really gotten into getting away from that, and as we've gotten away from it. I feel like it's kind of become a rallying cry for the the space that's against the outdoor activities altogether. You know, you put something up, not understanding understanding the context that you see it, and that's like a rally cry for, hey, this guy's out there just killing something just to kill it. We need to stop it. But in reality, you know, most of us are out there hunting not only for the fact that we get to put food on the table with an amazing story behind it for, for dinner time conversation. But we're also doing it as part of the conservation, being mindful of how we can help keep these herds in a healthy and good space. Yeah, which I agree. I mean, the deer population is way overrun in some areas and coyote populations out of control in other areas and hunters do help bring a level to all that which i i completely agree with that i mean yeah i don't expect anyone to eat a coyote because i'm pretty sure that'd be nasty but i mean i'll take i'll take some free venison any day that's all i'll say because venison's freaking delicious but yeah i mean but then that's the other aspect of this i always think of when people say like they want to hunt bigfoot i'm like are you going to try to eat them after you kill them? Like, that's why I want to know, like, how's the meat taste? That's, that's, what, that's what I'm curious about. <laughs> right. I and, mean, you I, know, I mean, that's the other aspect of the conservation thing. Us as hunters and fishermen out there, it's a self-sustaining program. You pay for it. And that was kind of where the senator down south was coming for was, you know, they're going to buy these tags, these licenses to go out and pursue Bigfoot which most likely they're going to come up short, but they're going to be happy to pump that money back into the environment. We're just giving them another, another buying opportunity, you know, a reason to get out in the field with a little bit of motivation and excitement. And for, you know, us, that's, that's kind of like being a little kid in a candy store. You know, we all go out with the ultimate idea of harvesting and bringing something home. But for a lot of us, it's more the time and the experience, living the adventure. You know, when I go out and I'm hunting, I think I probably name every single deer that I've ever encountered just because I'm out there for that connection with the land. I'm out there for that story and finding something in it that's going to inspire me to go further in my life and in my journey. And if I'm out there building this connection, like, um, I can give you an example. The first time that I ever ended up really stalking a doe and actually naming a doe. Naming is usually reserved for bucks because that, that's what we all get excited about is horns and antlers, right? Yeah. But uh, this would have been my first time encountering her was four hours after my divorce. After my second divorce was final. And I was really in an agitated place, just getting out of court. Went out to a friend's house, and they were going to let me hunt the land. I pulled up, seen the deer. was like, hi, I'm going to make this quick, run out, shoot it. And what happened was I wasn't in tune with what I was doing. So I missed this big old doe that was standing off my right. She spooked everybody. And stood there and stared at me for a minute. I was back there about two days later. Didn't see anything. On my way out, I locked eyes with her again. 
and then ultimately four weeks later i came to harvest who i named nyx the new beginning and there was a certain sense of satisfaction the fact that i got out there every day even though i was in that horrible mindset and just putting my nose to the grindstone knowing that <clears throat> that was the ultimate goal when i achieved that goal it gave me the opportunity to reflect touch her and to see that you know what i can make something of the new reality that i'm that i'm sitting in all it takes is that that work and that dedication that drive Yeah, which I, I can, res I mean, I can respect that kind of hunting. I can respect that wholeheartedly because I see nothing wrong with that. Did you, did you possibly name the name the doe after your ex? though? that's the question. <laughs> no, actually, it was uh, the Greek goddess of new beginnings. Uh, I want, I know it's not Athena, but I want to say Athena. <laughs> it was NYX when I read it. <laughs> I oh, Nick. Nick. Yes. Nick. Yes, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm pretty good with Greek mythology, but once you get down to like the lower non-Olympian gods, like it kind of gets a little hazy in my head. <laughs> but I know the main <laughs> ones. But when I get down to the lower ones, it's like, uh, I mean, so. And all it have you ever gone hunting in like this? Well, you live in the South, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, I'm up in Michigan. Uh, oh, dogmen territory. Yes. So you have heard of the dogmen, right? I'm guessing. I have. Never. I mean, I doubt. I, I doubt it. But <laughs> you ever come? You never came across any of them in the woods, which is where most never people had that see encounter. Them. Never had the encounter. Yeah. But I'm sure it's a story hunters tell each other up there to try to scare the shit out of each other, basically. But <laughs> Actually, the first time I heard about it, I think I was eight. I was on the boat with my grandfather and uh, my uncle, who decided to uh, tell me that story just to scare the shit out of me. And I think it worked for a minute. I'm sure it would, because, I mean, <laughs> dog dogmen basically... As far as most paranormal believers um, believe, it was the precursor to what became eventually, and I hate this freaking word, werewolf lore. Because I hate the word, I hate werewolves. I hate the name werewolf. I really do. Because it's just a fancy, it's a, they made it up. They made all these rules and different aspects of the lore about this creature that exists, supposedly. But they made it so it could be put in stories and movies and all that, and set all these rules so that people can kill it a certain way. But and that's dogmen... that's kind of how like uh, you know stories evolve over time through as they're handed down generation after generation. And where we're at nowadays, everything's got to have rules. So we've got to make up some kind of rule where that fits in there. Yeah, which I mean, that's that's why I hate the term werewolf because that's what that is. But dogmen, I mean, they're one of my favorite cryptids to talk about and theorize about because there's actually a website called North American Dogmen Project, and it has a map of the United States on it, and there are all these red dots of different encounters different people have had all across the nation, and let me tell you, there are so many red dots on this map that. Even if 80% of them are lies, just pure, bull-faced lies and made-up stories, the 20% that are left are enough to scare the shit out of me and keep me out of the woods. I'll, I'll tell you that much. But <laughs> it's just because, I mean, it's just, it's creepy because, I mean, dog is supposed to be man's best friend, but I don't think dog men are going to be man's best friend if you run into one because they're going to be terrified and they're going to be defending their territory no most definitely i'm uh actually south and east of the uh dog man bigfoot line if you kind of track the historical sightings through michigan so really my uh 
my biggest fascination and stuff that I've been diving into a lot lately with it is, uh, what was his name? Grover, uh... Oh, Grover Krantz? That's it. Is the work that he did. And I got exposed to that based off of, uh, a podcast that kind of told the story about how he got so into Wild it. thing? Yes. I love that show. Yeah, it was very well done. Yeah, his I believe it's his niece that's the host of it. Or so, his great niece or something like that. Yeah. But she she does a good the she did a really she did she's done a really good job. The first and second season were great. The third season kind of went off the paranormal realm into nuclear and it was like Okay, it was still interesting. I still learned a lot, but it's not why I signed up for the podcast to begin with. But I still supported her and listened to the whole season because it was interesting, at least. But I like history. But yeah, Grover Krantz was, uh, I believe, a lot of people call him one of the four horsemen of, of uh, Sasquatchery. It's him and Lauren Coleman and Patterson and I think either Gimlin or some other, somebody else. But but I mean, it's yeah, because and you're actually if you're a Michigan, you're a little bit east of the two most famous dogmen uh, legends, which is the Beast of Bray Road in Wisconsin. And also, actually, well, no, and then the other ones in Kentucky, it's the lamb. It's the Beast of the Land Between the Lakes, which that one has some really horrific elements to it because it basically is a dogmen slaughtering a whole family, including kids. So, uh, on a it's it's a it's an island in the middle of a river that no one could have got to that night. Like no human could have really got there that night. So, I can't. No one can explain it. It's people have been trying for I think it was fifteen twenty years ago at least it happened in the nineties. So, people have been trying to explain it for a long time and it just can't be explained. I mean, it's strange. And the same is same for Bray Road because that dogman has been around for since the 70s 60s so if it's been one cre- it's either been one creature that long or it's been multiple different ones being sighted on that road which that's just terrifying if there's that many on one road but well i'm curious what's your what's your take on is it just one that's just kind of stood the test of time is it a generation how, do, how does that work uh, in my mind, dogmen are like Bigfoot in my mind. They've been around possibly longer than humans have. And they just, they live in the wilderness. And as we, as humans, as we do destroy more and more nature and more and more forests to, to build civilization, we've been pushing them further and further back. But it gets to a point where there's nowhere else for them to hide. And that's when they start getting seen like they have in the last well getting seen more as they have in the last 70 years or so there's been reports of them like more and more i mean but also you gotta think about it this way look at anubis the egyptian god look at the the one aztec god i can never remember the name of who looked the same way as anubis like these were dogmen technically who were worshipped as gods in ancient times and Yes, people theorize that, oh, they were just aliens that came to Earth and that's who they were worshipping. That's why they look like that. Or they just made these gods up out of their brains and said, oh, this one looks like a dog. This one looks like a this one looks like an alligator or a crocodile in it because that's what's around us. So we base our gods on what's around us. But it's interesting because I had a I had a guy in my podcast about a month. Oh, actually, a couple months ago now. And he was in the army. And he, one of his buddies he was serving with over in Egypt saw a statue of Anubis and he started freaking out and he was like, what is that thing? What is that thing? And they told him like, that's a statue of an ancient Egyptian God named Anubis. And he's like, I saw something that looked exactly like that in my backyard twice when I was a kid growing up in New Orleans. So just the pure fear in someone's face when they see a statue from thousands of years ago and they can think it's something that still lives today i mean that right there just tells me that they can't be they're not making that up if there's gonna have that pure fear from seeing something 
Like nobody brought up a story of cryptids or anything. They were just doing their job over in Egypt. But so no, I think it's, it's that that migration that really raises the question because how do you get from one side of the world to the other and have things that are so identical? As we move from you know across the world, we kind of developed different traits we've evolved a little bit differently and yet those are like the common themes so it's a really good question as to what makes that that link so strong as opposed to what makes language so different in the way that it's evolved for example yeah i mean that's why my theory is, is that they are just, they are ancient, ancient things. I mean, there had to, I mean, maybe they were even around back to the time of dinosaurs, for God's sakes, or like towards the end of dinosaurs when mammals start to emerge. Maybe that's when all these other creatures start to evolve out and maybe they reached their max evolution apex point before way before we did and maybe they just stuck that way and they spread out while pangea was still one continent or or i mean they just got around maybe they maybe they i mean dogs can swim somewhat i doubt they're crossing the ocean but i mean maybe they found their way onto ships somehow they snuck onto ships and hid there or something i mean i don't know because no one has ever really hypothesized that dogmen are intelligent by any means, like as like they do with Bigfoot. I mean, dogmen usually are just more primal and more. I don't know. It's just because I, I've had another guy. I had another paranormal investigator out of Pennsylvania, Lon Strickler, on my show about a month ago, and he's he had, he runs a thing. Called, uh, his company's called Phantoms and Monsters, and he does he report he reports on a lot of different cryptid sightings that people have he goes and talks to them and looks around the area they were and he has seen he's had so many dogman reports out of pennsylvania alone of reports of them charging at people at kind of bluffing out people like you know bluffing them out charging at them and then like all at the last second turning away like you know like like dogs will do or like wolves or coyotes will do. But it's just, there's too many reports of them, in my mind at least, for them to be made up at all. Like, they have to be at least somewhat real if many people are saying they see, encounter them. I kind of feel like it ties back to that concept of energy, though. Because they're not an everyday occurrence. Means that at some point, they put a footprint on Earth and now with the fact that, you know, there's not as much wide open land as we grow and we develop and build new housing and everything, that energy has to expel at some point and come out in some way. Because if it doesn't, it's just going to, you know, it's going to build up to something that ends up being more or less, you know, tragic and something like, Kind of the, the story about down in Kentucky where the family was just mauled. So it has to come out in one way or another. And when it affects somebody, it sticks with them. Yeah, I mean, I can see that too. I mean, I can totally support that idea too with the, that, that it's just energy. But I don't know. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I really can't tell. I mean, it's one of those things where it's just creepy in a way because. I, I mean, so many, so many, I mean, and a lot of these stories go back so long that, like, I don't think people in the 1800s are going to make up a story about seeing something, they didn't even call them dogmen back then, to them it was just, we saw this dog on all fours, and next thing we knew, it was standing up on two legs and walking away, like, yeah, it sounds like a fanatical story from, like, a tabloid, but it's just, there's so many of them, there's so many examples of 1800s and early 1900s of settlers and frontiersmen that see these type of things when they went out west for the first time. 
So it's just, and plus, I I bring this up a lot. The amount of cave systems, and as an outdoorsman, you I'm sure you know this. The amount of cave systems on the east and west coast, and I'm sure there's some in the middle too of the United States that that'd be a good place for these creatures to have their homes, kind of. And you go deep enough in those caves, and we don't go that far in those caves. No one ever has. So. No, you're right. There, you know, for what is left out there in our modern time, there's a lot of unexplained and unknown that we just haven't ventured, we just won't adventure into whatever the case may be. And, you know, if it's real, that's the, that's the ideal place for it to be. If it's a story, it's become more so a story of trying to explain the unknown or maybe even nudge your buddy to go find out. But in a much larger vocabulary because as we've advanced we tried to put a new narrative and new words to everything and you know time and time again something catches out of the trend so we push it and somehow it ends up hitting somebody that has actually had that connection or that encounter that we can't explain and we all try to figure out how you know we look at them and we say hey that's not real that can't happen. But I, I feel like it, at the same time, when you're that person, it gets back to like I shared with you at the beginning, that phone call. You know, I, I can, I'm very skeptical about anything like that. If I can't find a logical answer, then, you know, it's kind of like whatever. The dream, I can explain, you know, hey, it was a dream. The phone call, yeah. I know I, I know I was damn well awake. I know I'm the one that answered the phone and I know what I heard. I can't explain it. I don't tell that story because people are like, man, that's stupid. You're making that up. But I can tell you every bit about it. Something stuck with me. And if somebody had that experience and was telling me about it, then yeah, it's going to kind of startle me and you know, I'm going to be able to relate and connect to it. Meanwhile, somebody sitting across the, you know, the table, the bar, whatever's going to go that just making that shit up. See, it's it's actually ironic in a way almost because I heard or I, I read something on Facebook either today or yesterday where it was actually someone saying like on a Reddit post or something that they had a relative die and they answered and they heard the phone ring the same night and they answered it and they had a feeling in their head that it was the person that just died trying to reach out to them. And they just stayed on the line saying the person's name over and over again until the the other end hung up. And they they were on the phone for I believe I believe it said like five or six minutes before the other line hung up. So I truly do believe that spirits can try to contact us. I mean, I live in a house with two spirits, so I completely believe that spirits exist and that they're around me because I get the feeling of it all the freaking time in this house. I mean the couple that built the house still live here apparently. So, and it's creepy at times, but at other times it's almost peaceful in a way. Cause it's like a guardian angel watching over you in a way almost, but you know, it's least, least... I've shared the story on my show. I shared it with, uh, during the course of an interview with, uh, spirit medium, Daniel. And he was trying to tell me and explain it to me. And, Obviously, I didn't have any logic behind it, so I wasn't exactly perceptive of it at the time. But in a way, it boiled down to this idea that when you have those kind of interactions, it's because they're nudging you along in order to uh, ultimately find the chunk of knowledge that you're supposed to latch on to, absorb, and go further in your life to... uh, ultimately complete the goals that you're here for. Yeah, which I I mean, I had I actually have had I've had a few mediums and psychics to my show over the last four or five months since I've been doing the show and one of them actually after we after we stopped recording and it got off live, I literally had one tell me that right to the right of me in this chair that there was a spirit that appeared next to me. Well, that has been next to me, she said. 
And it basically, she did a quick like reading of it and everything, and tried to see what she could see. And it, according to her, it ended up being my grandfather. Which I, the detail she gave, she couldn't have just made up because she didn't know me from a hole in the wall. We never talked or met before that day, so she couldn't have been like, "Oh, I know." Like she couldn't have known like all these details about my grandfather when he was younger, and it's just. It was trippy. It was a very trippy experience. And the whole time I was talking to her, I had like this feeling in the middle of my brain I couldn't push away. And my back was cold as ice. So I kind of believe that there was something there that I can't explain. That's for damn sure. But hello, Rachel. If I'm saying that right, I'm hoping up between your name, but which I tend to do. But so. Let me ask you this. What do you think about sea monsters, lake monsters, such as Loch Ness and Ogopogo and all the and Champ and all the other ones that are supposedly out there? I mean, you, you, you said earlier that there's a lot of the world that we haven't explored yet and that we don't know about. Well, when it comes to water, that multiplies by like a hundred or a thousand because the ocean's a mysterious freaking place we can't even begin to crack the mysteries of yet. So what's no, your opinion on that? You're so right, because if anything is possible as far as evolution goes, you know, we come across the skeleton and we're like, okay, well, that thing's gone. But yet there's so much uncharted depth down there that we just can't get to. Who's to say that we're right? That it didn't just evolve and go deeper to get away from whatever it was that was killing it off. It's that, that concept of evolution, that concept of the hopefulness of what's out there. I love the idea of there being new species that get discovered. They get discovered all the time. Yep. I mean... A lot of people say that this hurts the argument for Bigfoot, but I mean, gorillas weren't officially discovered until the early 1900s, even though natives in Africa told white men for years, oh, we we hear and we have seen these hairy creatures that walk like men and are huge in the mountains, but we don't know what they are. And for the longest time, it was almost like a Bigfoot type legend, and then it turned out to be gorillas which now we know exist, and unfortunately, they were in danger for a while because of humans, Because after we found out they existed, which some creatures I think it's better we don't find exist. But No, I gotta agree with you there. It's kind of like humanity, the experience of being human is like a double-edged sword. We get excited, we get behind something, and we just go at it. We don't really think about the effects of whatever it is we're doing until... It's almost too late. Exactly. And, I mean, no, and it's about finding that balance because, you know, we find any of these new species that we sit here and we, you know, throw ideas back and forth about. And it's going to be like the next jet. You know, we're all going to jump on and go after them and we've got to know everything about them. We've got to touch them. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Sometimes, they're better off to stop them off. And yeah, which no, go ahead. Which is why I'm actually happy we don't explore the oceans as much as we want to, because like there's this one whale species. It's like a narwhal. It has like a little horn on its head. And I just I just heard about these the other day actually, but there's only three or four of them supposed to be left in the whole planet. And I mean, probably due to like boating accidents and whatnot. I don't think it's, people didn't really knew they existed, so I doubt people were hunting them. But we probably did kill them off five, six hundred years ago. A lot, who knows? Back when whale hunting was a normal thing. So I mean, I I want to stay out of the oceans as much as possible because one, we don't know what's really down there that we could be bringing up with us. I mean, I I don't like to quote movies that much, but the Meg itself. What had a good point because we go down deep enough, we may bring something up we don't want to bring up because 
I am a firm believer that megalodons could still exist somewhere in the ocean. They really could. We've captured images of huge, huge sharks that we can't identify from helicopters and from satellite images. And like, do we really want to know these things exist? Like, like I would, I already don't like going in the ocean because of sharks to begin with, because that's their domain and I'm staying the hell out of it. Like we don't belong there. That's their domain. That's they're the pre apex predators there and they're there for a reason. So and yet people complain, oh, sharks are are biting and killing more humans every year because we need to get out of the ocean, because it's us polluting the ocean that they're that's the reason they're coming closer to shore. It's a free meal. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what though? You you raise the other side of the coin in that. Because yes, with global warming, it's affecting the world every day. It's changing the environment. And all those things that we don't know that are out there, would we really, would we benefit from knowing that they're out there before we kill them off? Most likely Just, not, because it'd be the only, the, only, the only benefit we'd have from something we find is if we find that, oh, this part of their body, this organ or this can help make medicine for us or something like along those lines. So we got to go kill all these things so we can make more medicine and so the pharmaceutical companies can make more money. I mean... But go down this line with it. Say that we discover something that has the ability to communicate with us, that can teach us so many new things that would expand just our understanding and our, our way of life. Would we miss out on something that like that if it went away because of global warming or the way that we're conducting ourselves now, or would it be more beneficial to discover, learn from, and possibly even save those things? I mean, I'm always more along the lines of saving and understanding a species anytime before we ever attempt to kill it for any reason. We should never kill any species unless it's overpopulation is going to harm other things like deers and running into deers running into the road and destroying cars or ruining gardens or ruining house or ruining just like a lot of things because they're overpopulated. So, I mean, I can agree with that, but unless they pose a threat to humans in some way or for, shape or form, we shouldn't be killing anything unless we're unless we're actually doing it to survive and then that's fine because we're not going to be killing a whole species to survive. There's plenty of other species out there that we can survive off of. I mean, there's enough chickens in this world to go around for a long time. So, well, no, I mean like, you know, the byproduct of global warming, say we come across the remains of something that we never even knew, but had we discovered it before global warming had its effect and we were able to, you know, help prolong that species. And in turn, they were able to teach us something about ourselves or about how to interact with the world. Oh, I mean, the way, I mean, it's funny because my whole life I was brought up as a kid with people saying, oh, global warming's not real. It's just a myth that scientists are making up. And then come to find out in the 2010s, or even earlier, maybe. Oh, global warming is 100% real. It's happening right now. Al Gore's not crazy. It's happening. But, so, I mean, the way we are destroying this planet and causing global warming is not good. I mean, yes, we're taking some measures to try to prevent it, but it's too little too late. That's the bottom line. It's too little too late. And if if we find species that we killed off because of global warming, I mean, we, I mean, we already know it's happening. Look at the, I mean, I know it's not as bad as they make it seem on the World Wildlife Foundation commercials, but look at the polar bears, look at the penguins, look at other Arctic creatures that are slowly dying off more and more because literally the land they live on is being destroyed by global warming. So. I no, mean, see, that's where, like, that, that's kind of where the, the conservationist in me really tends to disagree with that absolute part of it as far as there's nothing we can do 
You know, you look back at the hide hunters. They hunted the buffalo till near extinction, not even really realizing. I'm sure somebody gave thought to it, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't at the forethought until finally they showed up and the buffalo did. And then they stood there and they looked at each other and said, Hey, we did something wrong. And over the course of time, we figured out how to correct it. And I think the same thing plays true for the environment for global warming. You know, we destroyed the environment for years, not thinking about it. Now we're staring at each other going, hey, we did something wrong. So now we're starting to figure out how we can conserve what's still here. And that becomes the building blocks to restoring and rebuilding and helping the environment to get back to that healthier state that it used to be in. And I think, you know, when it comes to the idea of that question that I asked you, whether it would be better to know or not know of an animal, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword because if we don't know, then we don't, really, we don't lose anything. However, if we do know, or, you know, if we do find out and we get to take those leaps because we found this thing and whatnot, then I feel like it's beneficial. So it kind of plays into that idea of risk and reward or just seeking adventure in order to grow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the problem is we we realize there's a problem now. and We are trying to fix it slowly by slowly. There's some billionaires out there that have money that actually care and they're trying to do what they can to get people to change and get and they're trying to solve things but part of me still always feels like it's too little too late because i think i i fear for my kids and for their kids what the future will look like of this earth i mean i can see the world turning into eventually a, a waste planet with nothing left and people are fighting to survive every day because it's just there's no resources left and everything in this world got destroyed. I mean, I could see that coming in the future unless we drastically start changing things, which we're not going to because a lot of the biggest problems are these companies that are the biggest criminals in all this in a way. They don't want to stop making money, so they're going to try to keep things going the way they're going. But I think that comes in a shift of mindset through education. Because, you know, I, I can only imagine that when they were going through the lack of buffalo, when somebody seen one, you know, he stood up and said, hey, to not shoot that thing right now is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I'm going to go get it. Meanwhile, five or six of his buddies are saying, you know, if we shoot that one, we're not going to have that one to help bring on the next generation so they had to shift the mindset to start governing a little bit tighter the hunting seasons building regulations and rules that they taught generations coming up to abide by and there was a lot of backlash there's a lot of fighting back and forth throughout different camps of hunting different philosophies of it and everything but we got there and I can't say that, you know, the buffalo is running wild like it used to. There's only a couple of herds, but they're self-sustaining and they're healthy. They're there. We can't go back and we can't fix everything, but we can put that baseline in, in play and protect it. And it's about opening up the forum, bringing all the different schools of thought together and getting that firm that firm foundation handed out. I I agree. I 100% agree. And it's just those naysayers are the ones that are always the issue. The ones that don't want things to change because they're stuck in the past. Those are always going to be the issue. And it's just trying to convince them otherwise, which that's the biggest challenge we face is that. I mean, eventually they will all die they'll all pass on in the old generation and the new generations will try to set things straight but it's just hard to i mean 
I don't know. Hopefully it's not too late. That's the only thing I can say is hopefully it's not too late for this world and that things can be turned around. I don't feel it's too late. I feel like there's slow progress now. And as we teach the next generation, they pick up the ball and one by one it starts to roll. I I can see that. I mean, I I always whenever people try to say it's too late, I'm always the one that says, maybe not, maybe not. I mean, but then again, we won't know because it's not going to happen till long after we're gone and our kids are gone and generations after us are gone. I mean, it's not going to, it's not coming tomorrow. That's all. That's all I know is that it's not coming tomorrow. The world's not going to end tomorrow because of this stuff. And as long as we keep taking right steps towards it, there could be a future. There a hundred percent could be. Yeah. It takes, May not be the, it takes the hope. If there's a hope, yep. there's a way. Yep, I, I I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And this may be the most serious talk I've ever had in this show. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that, but it's yeah, paranormal is a lot, is a lot about the environment and conserving the conserving the, the environment for things we know exist and things we don't know exist. So it's not a it's not out of place in this show at all. I will say that. No, I think it's that forum. You know, like we started with, it's the ideas stories that feel the adventure and we all interpret everything completely different so if it's motivation for me to get out there in the woods which fuels everything that i do or it's motivation for you to get out there explore all these different theories somewhere we meet in the middle and you find some kind of understanding that enriches the bigger picture exactly exactly and that right there is a lesson tonight, listeners. That's the lesson tonight. Meet in the middle, and let's find a solution to this world going to hell. Because maybe let's start with getting Sleepy Joe out. But um, no, that's not for this show. That's for another show. <laughs> but, <laughs> so why don't you tell people, Mike, where they can find your podcast, what the name of it is again, and any anything else you want to throw out to listeners to try to find you. All right. So... I am the host, the author, the story, the whole thing behind what's called Project Mindfully Outdoors, which is something that's a project that is evolutionized over the last three years. It started out with me just putting it out there, my story to inspire, and now it's become the camp of healing, basically the outdoors. You know, we all go through, just like we were talking about with the environment and thing and all the different things around us that happen. It happens internally too and it leaves an lasting effect. So learning how to become the steward of yourself, building that conservation of your soul and that connection with the land is what it's all about. And that's what that's what I do over at Project Mindfreeoutdoors.com and the podcast under the same name which can be found on Apple, Spotify, and virtually everywhere else you pick up a podcast. And how do the people, how do people reach you if they want to come on your show and talk to you, or if they just want to support, support what you're doing in any way? Easiest way to reach out to me is Mike Martin at project mindfullyoutdoors.com. And uh, you can also swing over to the website, get signed up for uh, the ebook that I'm getting ready to release here uh, at the end of September, which is called Understanding Conservation of Self. Well, apparently you have uh, someone who agrees with you on our comments here. <laughs> yes, we do. So, and I, as, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and, you know, relearning that process and that connection with the earth, it's something that grows your soul and expands the world around you. You build these things in the outdoors, you bring them into the concrete jungle of the everyday world, and you know what? That's where growth happens. Agreed. Agreed. And as all my listeners know, you can find me on the Paranormal the New no Paranormal, the new normal, and the Maniacal Music Musings podcast group on Facebook, 
And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Juggalo Bastard. And everything I do is on Facebook. Everything I do is on my Twitter. So any of the podcasts I'm on, you can find there. I don't need them on here because it takes too long. So just go there and you'll see them all. And we thank our listeners and watchers for coming tonight. And I thank Mike for coming on and giving me a good, nice hour-long conversation about cryptids and about conservation, which they go hand-in-hand. Yes, they do. It's been my pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. My pleasure as well. And I will see you next week, listeners.